You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 522 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, December 22nd, 2022, and that means we just have a few days, a few short days left before Christmas, also just a couple of days before Christmas Eve, and I'm curious how many people debate every year versus how many people just have a fixed routine when it comes to Christmas and Christmas Eve and the opening of gifts and having dinner and all that kind of stuff. How many people just do the exact same thing every year versus playing it by ear on a case-by-case basis? In our house, we make it up as we go every year. There are a few general principles, but one of those is we are going to do what's convenient. And sometimes that means opening gifts on Christmas Day. Sometimes that means opening gifts on Christmas Eve. But this year, I... I'm thinking we are going to change it up again, not doing what we did last year. We're going to open gifts on Christmas Eve and then stockings we will reserve for Christmas Day after our church service. There's also going to be a church service in the evening on Christmas Eve, so we're looking forward to that. But we will have a breakfast of waffles, everybody pitching in, everybody getting their chores done, having breakfast, then cleaning up after breakfast, and then we will open gifts. And that way, everybody gets motivated. Everybody is on board together, not distracted with opening the gifts and playing with them and things like that. But we'll have our waffles, we'll clean up, then we'll open gifts, and then we'll just enjoy the day. We'll settle in and enjoy Christmas Day and go to our evening service In the morning, we'll have a short service at Summit View Community Church. You're welcome to join us if you're in the area, of course. 9.30 a.m. is when that will be, and it'll be short. It really will be. Everyone who's not actually in the service helping to, you know, preach the sermon or do the music or give the announcements, they will be allowed to just enjoy Christmas morning with their family and then... After the 9.30 service is over, we'll all go home and we'll continue enjoying Christmas with our families. But 4 p.m., that's when our Christmas Eve service is. 9.30 p.m. is when our Christmas Day service is. So come out, join us if you're around. You're very welcome to. But in this episode, it's not quite Christmas yet, and it's not quite Christmas Eve yet. We're going to talk through a lot of what's in the news Baby, it's cold outside, so we're just going (laughs) to read the news and talk about it a bit. Why not? Starting off on a bit of a lighter note, Holly Ash, who definitely has a little profile picture of Marilyn Monroe, the golden age of Hollywood, uh, at notthebee.com, December 20th. This film critic says there's a problem with white actors playing giant blue aliens because of racism or something. And there's a tweet or something here that is highlighted from Kathia Woods. 
She says, at some point, we got to talk about the cultural appropriation of Avatar and white actors are cosplaying as POC, which is people of color. It's just a mess and so not necessary. And no amount of visual effects slash CGI is going to erase that. Bad lace fronts, dry synthetic braids, Jesus fix it. And uh, I wasn't familiar at all with Kathea Woods, but apparently she's a film critic, an actual film critic, and so she makes a living, uh, you know, certifying uh, movies as being good or not so good or ignore this one or this one's great or what have you. Uh, At the risk of being as annoying as the folks who see racism under every rock or around every corner, I will mention it. I, I will bring it to your attention because that is a risk, right? You could be just as annoying as the folks who are uh, always seeing racism everywhere. And I don't want to be annoying like that. I don't want to get on your nerves and uh, do that to you, more to the point. Nor do I want to set that kind of an example where that's just you know what we're about. We're outrage culture, just like the woke folk and the left and all that. But this is silly. It is silly. We all need to know that. Uh, some people... <laughs> don't have anything better to do. And also they're virtue signaling and they're, you know, wanting to get, uh, you know, patted on the back for being to the left of everyone. As long as they're the farthest left, well, then they will always find a welcome among the radicals in our country. And so that's their angle. That's the calculation. And maybe they really also believe it. I don't know. I can't imagine how, but, uh, (laughs) Aza, one, two, four on Twitter had a reply and said, yeah, some outcry uh, in answer to Richard Houlihan, who asked if there was, uh, you know, all this hubbub in the first movie when they were casting persons of color uh, or not in the alien roles. Aza124 says, some outcry, yeah. Petition going around then to cast actual aliens in those alien roles, which is, you know, that's funny. That's funny. A little bit of mocking, uh, a little teasing, because we don't have uh, big blue aliens that we can cast in these roles. So the closest we can get is having people. And if you're going to have CGI anyways, and the CGI is going to, you know, be all the same, what you really want in casting, I would think, is people who are good voice actors, people who have good voices and who are going to convey a kind of sentiment in the way that they voice act, in the way that they, you know, intone certain things, et cetera, et cetera. You might want somebody with an accent, a particular distinctive accent, because there's going to be a a certain flavor. But these are all make-believe stories, right? When you watch a movie, unless it's a documentary, but even then, sometimes it's made up uh, you know, when when it's a, a big fantasy sci-fi flick like Avatar, it's made up. It's all going to be borrowing from real world events and things from history and things from current times and various cultures. This is the case everywhere you look. This was the case with Star Trek and Star Wars, that you're going to have various races in the universe who are either imitating certain nations or countries or empires from history or certain characters from history, uh, or in some cases, they just imitate animals. And so there's a kind of primal quality because these animals that we are familiar with 
have a certain reputation, right? They have a certain characteristic that we associate them with, or we associate ourselves and one another with in an allegorical or symbolic way. And so that's just storytelling. That's storytelling 101. And to get upset about it or offended, it just doesn't make a lot of sense because what else are you going to do? You, you will destroy storytelling if every story has to be 100% real or you can't tell it. Well, then I guess you're against fiction entirely in that case. But you've got to figure out what elements you're going to play with. And you've got to be intentional about it. If you want to tell a good story, for one, you do want people to know on some level, hey, this is just a story. This is make-believe. And I'm trying to convey something that is not make-believe, hopefully, that this is going to be a vehicle for. But you want the suspension of disbelief to where you're able to follow along and be interested. And at the same time, you also are being very honest. This is the difference between storytelling and lying is, does everyone involved here understand that this is make-believe? This is not a true story. This is not really what happened. Now, if they don't, and you're intentionally trying to you know, hoodwink them, deceive them, well then, that actually is lying. And it's not storytelling, it's lying. But if you're clear on the front end, hey, this is just a story this is make-believe, it's a fantasy, this is Lord of the Rings, this is Star Wars, this is what have you. Well, then I think fiction actually can be useful in proportion. You don't want to get carried away with it where that becomes your world and you escape into it all the time. You don't inhabit the real world. You don't want to do that. But if it can have a positive effect on the way that you see things really and truly in the real world, well, then Let's take it on a case-by-case basis. Now, another note, real briefly, on Avatar. James Cameron, the creator of Avatar, he's been working on Avatar 2 for about a dozen years. And he's got some crazy ideas with regards to testosterone. He's recently said some things to the effect that testosterone is a toxin. And that is just, uh, uh, that, that's crazy. That is crazy. See, this is the difference between storytelling and lying. Uh, Avatar, that's a story. Regarding testosterone as a toxin and telling people that, trying to you know get that idea out there, that's a lie. Uh, so let's, let's differentiate here. Let's distinguish. But he says also too, and I quote, let's have a female warrior who's six months pregnant because that's going to be you know, progressive and inclusive and uh, equality or something. That just doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. No pregnant woman, particularly if she's six months pregnant in her third trimester, wants to put on armor and take up weapons and go fight a war. She is in no shape to do that. Now, if she feels threatened, are those hormones going to make her a mama bear that you don't want to deal with more so maybe than... Uh, a, a woman who's not pregnant, yeah, you threaten her child, her baby, if she's got those maternal instincts, she is going to be a force to uh, reckon with. But there's a reason why throughout history, women who are fighters and warriors are remarked on as being unusual because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to send women out there and onto the battlefield. It might unnerve your enemies for a little bit, but it has a coarsening effect 
And it really does erode your own civilization's basis to say, we're going to send our women out there. What kind of men are you? We're going to send our women out there. And then if we lose, everybody is eliminated or else enslaved and treated in a brutal way. Part of the reason why chivalry has been, you know, not just a Christian virtue. It did come out of the medieval uh, Catholic Church in particular, this creation of rules for warfare where you say, we're not going to attack innocent people. We're not going to attack old people or children or women. That's not Christian warfare. That's not just war. You only fight people who are attacking you or who are other warriors. And whoever wins, you are going to treat graciously and be merciful to the vanquished, to the conquered. There's a reason why not just in Christianity do you have this general sentiment. And again, the exception is when you have a, a especially brutal, ruthless, uh, you know, a harsh warrior society or, uh, you know, think of the Mongols at various times, the Huns at various times. If they come in and they put every man, woman, and child to the sword, that gets a lot of the surrounding you know, cities and nations' attention because that is not seen as normative. You take a city that you have besieged and you might put every man who took part in the battle to the sword, but you now are going to take the women and the children and the elderly under your wing in some sense, at least to a, a large extent, and deviations from that are regarded as wrong, as immoral, or as cruel, or as evil, not for no reason. But if we say, we're going to send the women out there, we're going to send the children out, I mean, why stop at women? Let's send child soldiers out there. Let's send the elderly out there to the front lines in the name of inclusivity. Not only is it foolish, it's also corrupt, and it's, it is bad. It's bad. Don't go along with that. That concerns me far more than what ethnos the actors playing the voices of the blue aliens hail from, let me tell you. In other news, <clears throat> James Cameron, regarding Avatar, he's already filmed Avatar 3 and 4, so he's committed. He is just now putting out Avatar 2, and it's been a dozen years since Avatar 1 was released, but Avatar 3 and 4 are also already <clears throat> you know, waiting in the wings because he wants to avoid what they're calling the Stranger Things effect, where you have teenagers when the show starts or when the series starts, who by the time you're done filming season after season after season, they look like they're 27. Uh, why do they look like they're 27? Because they are 27. <laughs> and also because all of this fame and notoriety has, uh, in some cases, caused them to live a very, very different life and to become a very, very different person in the real world than they were before they made their big break, before they you know, hit this uh, big time with that role. So that actually is a very smart move. James Cameron, with regards to testosterone and whether pregnant women should be sent to the front lines, uh, not so smart. James Cameron, with regards to filming Avatar 2, 3, and 4 all at the same time, that is actually pretty smart. If you can pull it off logistically, that's a good move, speaking of suspension of disbelief. In other news, on another lighter note, uh, another fun story here, 
Uh, consider Andres Arato. Do you know who Andres Arato is? Let me put it a different way. You might recognize this name more closely, more easily, more readily. Hide the Pain Herald. Hide the Pain Herald has been a meme for also uh, about a dozen years, about as long as Avatar 1 has been out. But you've seen it. I know you've seen it. This guy, an uh, older gentleman, holding a cup of coffee, sitting at a computer, on the phone, smiling at the camera, you know, holding a thumb up. He is used in memes galore because his smile looks fake. It looks like I am miserable. I am unhappy. I am not enjoying that I have to figure this out or I just learned this news, but I'm going to try and put on a happy face, but it's, it's not real. And so he is this this meme, right? People use his pictures, uh, which there's an interesting story behind that. They use his pictures with the text over top to convey all kinds of situations and scenarios in which you find out something that is not happy news, or you're having to go through something procedurally that is just, it's not a, it's not a fun time. It's not good times. The real guy though, he had no idea on the front end that his pictures, his face uh, would end up this meme. He had no idea. And it just happened kind of by accident. I'm going to play a little bit of a clip here from a TED talk that he gave a while back. It is a fascinating talk that you should definitely watch the full version of, but I'm going to play just a little bit of what he has to say about what this is like from his perspective, being a world-famous meme. Take a listen. I got some scientific awards and I even was elected as the vice president of the Hungarian Lighting Society. But, thank you. But it's not the reason why I'm here now. Maybe many of you are familiar with my face. So, Raise your hand if you see me before on, on the monitor. <laughs> Do I see well everybody? <laughs> Amazing, incredible. So it might be because my photos are circulating in the internet in millions of copies. When I post something on a social network, thousands of people will see it. Some of my videos were seen by millions. Uh, day after day, I got dozens of messages. I brought you just a few examples to show the, the, the style and the content of these messages. This one is from a girl uh, named Julia who lives in Italy. And she wrote me, thank you for bringing genuine joy and tenderness in this gray world. I hope I do. Another one is from the USA, from a certain Mason. He wrote that, I loved watching your video, seeing your genuine happiness filled me with my own. And just one more from another continent, from Pakistan, from Muhammad. He wrote that I am the best inspiration to the sad people of the earth. 
Am I? <laughs> but how can a retired engineer become a meme? It's a strange story with some interesting twists, and it may be some, maybe has some lesson to learn. At least I hope so. At uh, the beginning, my photos served as illustration in different uh, internet publication, printed publication, newspaper articles, advertisements, and so on. But later, you could see me mostly with some funny caption called meme. Many of my own ages have not even met this word. I also had to look at it in, in, in Wikipedia. So I found this definition for memes, that it is an image, a video, a piece of text, and so on, typically humorous in nature, that is copied and spread rapidly by internet users, often with slight variation, that perfectly applies to my case. <laughs> it's just, this is great. This is great stuff. And again, like I said, go watch the full thing. That was only a few minutes of it. It's about 16 and uh, two thirds long. And uh, he, he's, he, he comes across as just a genuine guy, right? Like a genuine guy, engineer, very practical and, you know, enjoying life. And uh, just kind of an unassuming character. And the idea that he had to look it up. It, he had to look up what a meme is when people told him that he was a meme. He's like, oh, I am, right? Really? Okay. So so what is a meme? What does that mean? And it's just yeah, like every bit of it is just uh, delightful. There's no other word for it. It's delightful. But I think this gets to the fact that this is a market change. It is a, a shift in the way that people communicate online and in the way that people see themselves and understand themselves. He's got people writing him from all over the world, you know, because they encountered his face and his story then subsequently in a humorous way. And it was taken and it was, you know, in some sense appropriated. So riddle me this, and this is just food for thought and we won't dwell on it too, too much, but what really is the difference between that and making up a story, right? We're going to take this person's face and there's a certain sentiment that's being expressed that is relatable. It's not our face, but it's relatable. And uh, we all have faces. And very often on the internet, you don't see people's faces. I mean, you might see a still photo, uh, if they have chosen to put one beside their name on social media or some website or the comment section or what have you, but that might not even be their face, right? It, it, you know, in the case of Holly Ash over at Not the Bee, she's got Marilyn Monroe's face, right? Some of the other people who write for Not the Bee they have other people's faces. Harambe, and that's not actually Harambe. You know, hate to tell you, Harambe's a gorilla, and that's the face that is put up there for the profile pic. If you play computer games, very often you'll find 
Uh, people don't use their real name. Uh, almost never do they use their real name. They use some silly name. And it's symbolic to them. It means something to them. It's a handle, uh, you know, but that, you know, that, that that's the internet. And we recognize that's the internet. And for some reason, you know, it, it's a departure uh, that we would actually now encounter the real man whose face was made into a meme, who's uh, sitting down for some stock photo, uh, you know, photography session you know, that turned into something totally different and it was used very differently than why he had put it out there in the first place. That doesn't take my generation by surprise that his face would be made into a meme, whether he was on board with that, signed up for it or not. But then encountering the actual person and realizing, hey, this guy, you know, he's got a real life. And what did he see as his big accomplishments uh, in life to this point? you know, being an electrical engineer, being retired, you know, traveling, uh, going to Turkey, like he talks about. And then we take it a very different direction, right? We, we get something else out of it. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I would encourage you to think about what you're putting out there because it might be used for good or for ill in ways that you didn't intend. Be careful about what you're putting out there, but also, you know, it it might be that we need to be more intentional about being people and, and human beings and recognizing that there are people on the other end of our internet connection, our phone connection. They're not just, you know, objects for us to do with what we will. And we have to remember that. We, we don't want to create so much psychological distance that we stop being human or stop being image bearers of almighty God or stop regarding one another as human. Stop regarding one another as image bearers of the almighty. Some food for thought. Moving on for something uh, similar, actually related, and I'll explain in case it's not obvious uh, at first blush. So I played a bit of audio in yesterday's episode of a former U.S. Senator, Frank Church, talking with Meet the Press back in 1975 about the U.S. intelligence agencies and the technology and the capabilities that they had developed for intercepting communication uh, you know, between our enemies. On the battlefield, off the battlefield, that was uh, something that was developed decades ago, particularly for use in the Cold War against the USSR. It was deployed on battlefields in Korea and Vietnam and in subsequent battlefields in the more modern contemporary context that I'm familiar with, the war on terror in Afghanistan, in Iraq, all over the Middle East, all over the Islamic world, all over the world, period. And particularly with the war on terror involving counterinsurgency and trying to sniff out terrorist cells here in the U.S., in Europe, in Australia, in Western developed nations where you know, there might be soft targets, uh, not just the uh, World Trade Center, obviously, but shopping malls and places of business and churches and synagogues and grocery stores and 
you know, in the case of the Boston Marathon bombing, you know, the, the whole area that people are going to be uh, running through is a potential target for somebody who wants to make a political statement or a religious statement or a religio-political statement of defiance, who wants to make others afraid and cause them to change their behavior. Insofar as these tools were developed initially for waging war in a more conventional way, they have been put to a very different application in my day. Now, I remember 9-11. I remember the first plane having crashed into the World Trade Center tower and it being on the news. And I watched in real time as the second plane hit and then stories unfolded throughout the day. And our country changed, the world changed, history changed over the course of the next 20 plus years, even up to the present. And now we've moved on and the big deal is Ukraine and Russia and potentially China going into Taiwan. But all of these tools are still there behind the scenes being used. And early warnings, you know, back in 1975 from Senator Frank Church, and then definitely in the early 2000s, all the warnings from small government types, constitutionalists, conservatives, that these tools, these capabilities of our military and our law enforcement and our intelligence agencies could and probably would be used in nefarious ways at some point against U.S. citizens, all those warnings, I would say, have proven prescient, have proven true, particularly where, let's say, one of the most recent batches of Twitter files revealed that the Pentagon had dozens of accounts on Twitter for trying to uh, you know, engage in psychological operations in the Muslim world trying to move and maneuver and really manipulate Muslims around the world to get on our side or to turn in potential terrorists before they attacked innocent men, women, and children or American interests or our allies' interests. There were fake accounts put into place by our Pentagon, by the U.S. military, to help uh, spread narratives, kind of like memes, but to spread narratives that then would gain traction and legitimacy and strength and push out, displace narratives that are undesired, which are potentially dangerous, which are actually dangerous even. Insofar as we know that our Pentagon and our intelligence agencies do that in the Middle East, do that with regards to Islamic terrorists. There is no reason whatsoever to suppose that those exact same tools have not been leveraged against conservative Christians here in the U.S. There's no reason whatsoever to suppose that particularly when the Pentagon or intelligence agencies every now and then over the years have leaked or had uh, leaked by conscientious objectors within their ranks, uh, let's say training materials, warning of domestic extremism here in the U.S. by Christian nationalists, so-called. Insofar as association with 
Revolutionary War, War for Independence uh, symbols and flags and slogans and such started being put on bullet point lists of signs of a potential terrorist in the making or a terrorist cell or a terrorist organization, a potential threat to national security. And so far as we've seen that, if they really believe, if anybody in our Pentagon, anybody in our intelligence agencies, anyone in law enforcement domestically believes those training materials are true and correct and valid, that the bigger threat is potentially domestic terrorists here at home, not Islamic terrorists around the world, then it would be irresponsible for them to not leverage these tools here at home, here in the U.S., against potential threats. It would be irresponsible. And that's exactly what they would tell themselves. And I think that's exactly what they did tell themselves. That is what Frank Church was warning about 50-some years ago. That is what Republicans in particular, I would say, over the past 20 years have been warning about. And that is what we should be expecting. And you know, if we find it, we find direct evidence of it, uh, in some sense, it's old news already because we've been warned for... 20 to 50 years that this was coming down the pike. But nevertheless, uh, what I'm not saying when I say it's not a big surprise or it won't be a big surprise if that's the next thing that comes out from the Twitter files, what I'm not saying is we should just shrug and say, okay, fine, you know, whatever, no big deal. Uh, There's a chilling effect that we ought not to give into for the exact same reasons that we didn't negotiate with terrorists after 9-11 or the Boston Marathon bombing. Or at least I didn't. I, I didn't negotiate with terrorists. Some wanted to go around and apologize to potential terrorists as a way of getting them to not be radicalized or not perceive the United States as an enemy. Some even, like former President George W. Bush, went on TV, talked with news reporters and said, basically, we worship the same God. How could we be enemies? We're not at war with Islam. Yeah, but maybe Islam is at war with us, right? Maybe maybe that's a way uh, that we should reframe this and see it because it is a religious and political and economic and cultural clash between the West and Islam. These are competing worldviews. These are competing traditions. These are competing civilizations, It's not necessarily the United States that's at war with Islam, but it is Islam that's at war with the whole world until all are made to submit, all are made to bow. And yes, I understand. There there are variations within Islam, different traditions, different ways of interpreting, just like there are in Christianity. There are folks who don't take the Bible as God's inerrant word for Christians. They say, well, I think there is some error and there's some... You know, things in there that they just can't be possibly true and you can't take it like that and it can't mean this and this doesn't apply anymore and that was just for that time and And there are all the same kinds of debates in Islam and in most religions. What of this is practical? What of this is just food for thought? What of this is to be taken symbolically or spiritualized? But that's just it, is for Christians to take literally what God's word says For Christians to say, no, this does apply to today, this does apply right now, and I must believe it, I must affirm it, I must live according to it, 
or else I'm not a Christian, for Christians to say those kinds of things when the left or when our own government here in the U.S. says that we can't distinguish between, uh, you know, radical Islamic terrorism, we best be aware and and have a, you know, a, a preparedness mentally for meaning it, it will impact us. Uh, even when we can't quite put our finger on exactly how and where and to what end. I mean, when we hear that our sensibilities are being nudged, when there's bragging about that, uh, when there's boasting to that effect publicly and in books and in news articles and interviews, when there's boasting that we're being nudged uh, for our own good in the direction that secularists uh, think best for us in the world, well, then I, I just think we should take them at their word. It's not conspiracy theory at that point. Uh, for that matter, too, you know, I have a correction, actually, uh, before I say what I'm going to say next. You know, a few episodes back, I was discussing Spicy Ramen, Twilight Imperium, and uh, at the very tail end, very, very briefly, the yet again delayed release of the JFK files concerning the assassination of JFK. John F. Kennedy. It is not a conspiracy theory that John F. Kennedy, president of the United States, was shot and killed in 1963. Now, again, my correction here, I said he was shot in Houston, Texas. That wasn't accurate. He was actually shot in Dallas, Texas. Houston comes more easily to mind for me because I have worked in the oil and gas industry for over a decade now. Lots of oil and gas company headquarters are in Houston, and I just I think Houston when I think Texas, uh, but it was actually Dallas. It was Dallas where JFK was shot and killed. But it's not a conspiracy theory to say that JFK was assassinated in 1963. That's true. It's not a conspiracy theory to say that he was murdered. That's true. Where there's room for debate and definitely room for asking questions and wondering, okay, who all was involved and why, and were they actually brought to justice? Were they held accountable? Uh, that's where actually way back when the term conspiracy theorist came from. And it was our own government, it was the FBI that came up with the term conspiracy theorist to know what to call Americans who said, well, we don't believe the official narrative. So as to sideline them and marginalize them and stigmatize their views so as to discredit them. Let's put the burden of proof on them. If they don't believe our official report, we'll call them conspiracy theorists. But it's not a conspiracy theory to say JFK was killed in public while driving down the street in Dallas, Texas, in 1963. That is a fact. It happened. But if it turns out, whenever uh, the, the files are released and made public and declassified, if it turns out that our own intelligence agencies actually planned it and executed it, somebody in our intelligence agencies actually made it happen because they didn't like JFK or he was going to 
make public something that they didn't want to have made public or what have you, well then, at that moment where we know that that's the case, it's no longer a conspiracy theory. Now, here's the additional question. If it's not, if it does turn out to be the case, and it's no longer a conspiracy theory, once it's proven to be true, then was it ever actually a conspiracy theory? If some people said, hey, that seems highly plausible based on a whole lot of things that I know and have seen and read and understand, if they turned out to be right before it became common knowledge or it was commonly accepted or we all agreed that that's what it was, were they ever conspiracy theorists in the first place? Was it ever a conspiracy theory in the first place? You know, so also with Frank Church. You know, it actually it turns out, uh, you know, the church committee, I, I knew I had heard of Frank Church somewhere else. The church committee was this explosive investigation and effort at bringing accountability to our intelligence agencies that Frank Church led in 1975. He had a committee and it was called the Church Committee. And you can look it up, look it up on Wikipedia, or I'll put a link in the description for this episode. But some of what came out of the Church Committee's investigation of our military and our intelligence agencies was that they were working on mind control, surveillance, infiltration of American political and civil rights organizations. They were planning and plotting to mislead the American public, feeding false narratives and false stories to the mainstream media through something called Operation Mockingbird. It was a systematic propaganda campaign with both foreign journalists and domestic journalists operating as CIA assets. Again, not conspiracy theory, conspiracy fact. It was a conspiracy. They conspired to lie, to deceive, to mislead, to control, to manipulate, to even, when necessary, kill. And they did some highly unethical things, all in the name of national security justifying it to themselves, well, this is for the greater good. And nobody can know about it because if they knew about it, well then, they wouldn't understand for one and for two, it would be a threat to national security. So we're going to do these things that are wrong in the name of national security. That's how we'll sleep at night. And also, if anybody tries to stop us, we will stop them first in the name of national security. And oh, by the way, we're going to lie when we're asked directly, are we doing this thing? Oh, no, we're not doing that. Again, for what? For national security, in the name of national security. What this ends up producing, though, is a deep and abiding distrust of our government. Because whoever the elected officials are, if the unelected bureaucrats and intelligence operatives decide that they know best what is in the interest of national security... Is there anything they can't or won't do to eliminate threats, even threats from elected officials, even potentially the president of the United States? Increasingly, we know the answer to that is no, and not <clears throat> 50 years ago, right now, with regards to former president Donald Trump. We know that the answer is not in theory 
Maybe, possibly, we know that the fact is, not a conspiracy theory, the fact is that our own intelligence agencies had partisans who decided they wanted to stop Donald Trump from becoming president. Then once he became president, they wanted to try and neutralize his ability to get his agenda accomplished. And yes, they worked with social media and traditional legacy media to peddle false narratives, to suppress true stories, relevant facts, relevant news that we needed to know in a timely manner as the American people. That is not in defense of national security. That's in defense of their own security. At a certain point, they lose the plot and they forget the difference and it becomes this self-sustaining thing. It becomes cancerous and it is a cancer on our national character and on our international reputation. And I think that's why the JFK files are experiencing a delayed release. I think that's also why we may not get the true full account of everything our government has been doing domestically or internationally in our name. But like I said, I wanted to correct my taco. JFK was not shot in Houston, Texas. He was actually shot in Dallas, Texas. And now you know, if you didn't before. Moving on, in other news, Tim Meads over at the Daily Wire wrote a piece, Season's Greetings from the Swamp, support our $1.7 trillion omnibus bill, pay your taxes, and kick rocks, America. $1.7 trillion, actually I think it's $1.65 trillion. Too many Republicans voting along with this, saying, ah, oh, yes, it, it needs to happen. This has to happen. we got to vote with them. A lot of those same Republicans will turn right around and try and blame the Democrats for it. But this is irresponsible. And if you don't agree, an honest question, an honest question for those whose eyes don't just glaze over at such stories, how much is too much? If this is not that number that is too much, is there any amount of money our government could spend that we would say is too much? Do we have a limit in mind at all? Do they, do we just trust that they know where the limit should be without thinking about it at all? Do we keep that in mind when we are talking about things that we're for or opposed to? Are we considering the ramifications long-term? And how do we know, right? How do we know where the limit should be? That's a big question that a lot of Americans are just not thinking about like they ought to be. How do we know where the limit should be? If only we could look at what happens historically when countries devalue their currency. If only anybody else had uh, tried that before and we could see how it worked out for them. Uh, Fun fact, and we won't delve into everything that is being spent uh, in the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill where all that money is going. The simple truth is only God knows. But nestled amidst the multitudinous things, our money is being devalued to support around the world. There is funding for border security for Arab nations in this omnibus bill, according to reporting by Joseph McKinnon at The Blaze. Yes, you heard that right. Border security for Arab nations. Meanwhile, there's a news blackout for how many people are coming across the southern border into the U.S. right now. 
apparently that's a threat to national security if you report on how many people are coming across. Uh, the Denver mayor, I believe, just declared a state of emergency because Denver is near the breaking point given the influx of illegal immigrants into Denver. We've got a cold snap, so I don't know what people do. I really don't. If they're homeless or if they are illegal immigrants and they don't have a place to live, I do not envy them at all at all. Uh, but there is a limit to what we can reasonably sustain and maintain stability and equilibrium as a people, as a country, in tolerating. At a certain point, you have to say, no, that is one of the most powerful words <laughs> you could learn and when to use it. No, right? Uh, all of the world's people are going to come into the U.S. Uh, no, right? Not because there's no room, but because how is it going to work? Where are they going to live? What are they going to do for work? Uh, also, we have all the people in the world coming here, apparently, even as our money is being sent out. So what's up with that, right? Both cases, we should say no when it's somebody else sending our money without our permission. And you would say, well, they kind of have our permission because we vote for our leaders and then our leaders end up being the ones to vote for these things and approve them. And I would say uh, only if we actually have free and fair elections, but that's a story for another day. Moving on, speaking of our money being sent overseas, speaking of not being able to say no, apparently, Ukraine will get what it needs to defend itself and succeed on the battlefield. Biden tells Zelensky, according to reporting at the Epoch Times by Jeff Lauterbach, Zelensky came to the US to meet in person with President Biden yesterday. And the pledge is, Whatever you guys need, whatever you need, we are going to get it for you. We are going to give it to you. We are hemorrhaging money to Ukraine, and it is a bad idea. This is a bad idea to not know when to say no, and that's enough. We do not have unlimited resources here in the U.S., and it is one thing to say, ah, yes, but the Ukrainian people are having a really hard time, and we should do something. Oh, we've done quite a lot, actually, but it's quite another thing to say, you are going to send my money over or you're going to print money out of thin air and send my money over there in the sense of devaluing the currency, inflating the cost of everything else here, decreasing the supply of everything here, increasing the money supply around the world, the number of dollars in circulation. You are stealing from me. I didn't agree to that. I didn't approve that. I didn't vote for that. That's not charity. That's not out of my goodwill. I'm not a cheerful giver in this case and in so many of these other cases. So you're devaluing my currency. You are taking resources away from my family when it's hard for us to buy groceries. And some people will say, well, you know, hey, uh, you know, we can help you too. And it's like, but that's not the ideal. That is, you know, that that's not, you know, again, as a Christian, when I get called a Christian nationalist or we get called Christian nationalists just for daring to say anything political, it is a very biblical principle and precept to aspire to live a quiet life, working with your own hands, minding your own business, being dependent on no one. That actually is a large part of how you can walk before outsiders in a blameless way and have a good reputation. 
But twisting people's arms and even in many cases, just sending it over without their permission, without them agreeing to it, that's theft. That's not charity. That's not you being generous if you're being generous with my money, my resources, and I didn't approve that. That's theft. So there's that. (laughs) There's that. A little closer to home here, not to be... um, you know, not not to just pry you away from any trust that you have whatsoever in people with authority, people who are supposed to be there to serve us or to help us. Um, the the story I'm going to touch on briefly and just tell you about. Um, it's a disturbing story. We won't get into the details. We won't dwell on this for long. But I, I have. A point that connects with the other points that I'm trying to make uh, that I I think you do well to consider and just have in mind with all of the above and with the topic of being dependent on no one as much as you can be, being independent as much as you can be. Be dependable? Absolutely. For people you have a responsibility to, be dependable, but towards the end of being dependable, be as independent as you can be. A story from Brandon Dre at the Daily Wire, Colorado nurse accused of drugging, sexually assaulting, and recording lewd images of unconscious patients for 10 years. So this is kind of a big deal, uh, really. This Christopher Lambros is his name, 61. He was a nurse in Grand Junction, and he was caught taking pictures with his phone and uh, doing very uh, wicked, corrupt, rapey things with patients who he was supposed to be taking care of. He was supposed to be helping nurse them back to health. And instead, he was abusing them. He was taking advantage of them. He was, in a sense, raping them. And there are not very many of his victims uh, that they've identified as yet. In reading through the article here at the Daily Wire, there are, I believe, three defendants that were identified. So they know who three of the victims were, but four terabytes of data were collected. Approximately 700,000 cell phone photos or 65,000 hours of cell phone videos, according to the law firm involved here. This is, this is a big deal. And The point is not that everybody who works in the medical industry, you should now distrust. And the point is not that everybody's doing this all the time, but the point is we should not just assume that because somebody has a given title, they wear a certain uniform, they're in a position where we should be able to trust them. Therefore, we just stow any kind of reservations, red flags, we just ignore any kind of misgivings, uncomfortability, we just you know, silence that internally and in one another. It is a fact that whether we're talking about government, whether we're talking about the medical establishment, whether we're talking about education, whether we're talking even about the church in too many cases, when you give someone power and authority and ability and opportunity, and they also have a sinful nature, you are rolling dice. If there's no accountability, if there's no willingness to say, 
that little two-letter word, no, if, if we lose the capacity or we never develop the capacity to say no or to double check to make sure that our no is being abided by, our no means no, our yes is yes, our no is no, we are not just rolling dice, we are emboldening and in some sense tempting and inviting men and women with sinful natures to give in to temptation and to do awful things. And this is one of the big reasons why I am all for doing my own research. And yes, I know there are folks who find that really uncomfortable and it's just really wild and out there because we live in this age where everybody's got to trust experts for everything. What qualifies you to do your own research with regards to medical care or politics or (laughs) how to educate your children? And my answer to that would be, I can't afford not to, and and neither can you. But we have to have a paradigm in which when someone has done the research, when somebody has looked into things, when somebody has done the fact-finding and they find uh, irregularities, we are willing to hear them out. If we don't like to feel uncomfortable, and so therefore we always ignore, we always marginalize, we always downplay, we always silence those people, well, then what you get is you get a long line, a long string of abuses and in every direction, because that mentality of, hey, I just want to be comfortable and I want to check out, zone out, entertain myself to death, amuse myself to death. That mentality, if you apply it in one arena, uncritically, I would say irresponsibly, odds are high you're going to apply it in every other area as well. And that's not what we're called to. You know, again, Thessalonians, Paul writes this great little gem at the tail end of one of the chapters. He says that we should aspire to live a quiet life, working with our hands, minding our own business, minding our own affairs, being dependent on no one. We should do that. And it's important in context to recognize that you might still get mocked, scoffed at, marginalized, slandered, abused. But it gives you something to shoot for. I mean, it is a value. It's not just selfishness. Actually, it can be a very selfish thing to submit not just yourself, but others to undue dependence when that's not what we're called to. Uh, We're not called to be dependent on everybody for everything all the time. Sometimes there's no getting around it. Sometimes there's just no avoiding it. But the one who does not work should not eat, for instance. Some people are just lazy and when they're being lazy, you don't want to give into that because it's bad for them and it's bad for everybody else. Uh, sometimes you don't want to be dependent on other people because the person who is giving you something has strings attached and you don't want those strings attached because you don't know what they're always attached to. Some future favor is going to be called in. And is this the kind of person I want calling in favors on me, having some leverage against me? I don't know about that. You've got to think about these things. We've got to consider them. And in particular, as Christians... All at the same time, we say, I don't trust man, not even myself, maybe especially myself. I don't trust man to always do what's right, to always say what's true, to always meet his responsibilities. In fact, I trust that man will not. Apart from God's redemptive work, I trust that God is true and every man a liar, actually. But that should not cause us to despair. And it shouldn't make us unloving or cold-hearted either. 
what that should produce, taken with the whole counsel of God, is a prudence, a temperance, a discretion that is beneficial to those around us, even just by example, even if we're not persuading them all the time, hey, watch out for this, hey, watch out for that. Hey, I don't trust this person. They've got shifty eyes. You know, and and again, too, also, you know, it doesn't have to mean that everybody is always lying to you all the time or that they're always behaving corruptly in every little thing. And if you ever find them acting altruistically, well, then they are a good person. If you ever find them telling the truth, well, then they, no, they're honest. They're honest. But it is to say that wisdom requires more than just, hey, I can justify putting myself at this person's mercy through one instance of good behavior. You know, a broken clock is right twice a day, as the saying goes. And so also, somebody who's a dishonest person will occasionally tell the truth. They have to. In order to be successful, they have to tell you the truth. They have to give you something. Even a very selfish, corrupt person will be generous at times because they expect a repayment on the investment. They expect to get more than they're putting out. Now, what we don't want to do is we don't want to be hermits and not have any relationships. Also, what we don't want to do is start accusing people left and right of, hey, you did this and you did that. And I suspect the worst about everybody. No, 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 no. That's that's not right. One of the Ten Commandments is to not bear false witness against your neighbor. So be careful before you just start throwing around insinuations about people's bad character, allegations. If you don't know, well then, either keep it to yourself until you've verified or make sure you are couching what you say in a precise way, that you are telling the truth. Double check, verify. Now, next up here, also a story from Colorado. This one, Sam Tabachnik from the Denver Post writes on, looted, stolen relics, laundered art, and a Colorado scholar's role in the illicit antiquities trade. Uh, This one, December 1st, it's part of a uh, three-part special report from the Denver Post talking about a Douglas Latchford who for decades marketed stolen goods from Cambodia's ancient temples. Couldn't have done it without his friend or business partner, co-conspirator in Denver. This guy, nicknamed the Scholar, smuggled and traded and plundered and used the Denver Art Museum as a conduit, as a kind of marketplace. And this is to say, again, let's do think about what belongs to whom, and let's think about who we trust. You know, sometimes the people we put the most trust in are in the best position to disappoint because we've put so much confidence in them, because we have been so unguarded, so vulnerable. You put somebody in a position of authority in a school, in a university, in a museum, in government, in the military, in law enforcement, if they have no accountability, if there is no mechanism by which to verify that they are doing what they ought to, if there's no appetite for being willing to say no, 
Well, what you might find is over the course of decades, they act badly. And the more they get away with it, the more they justify to themselves that the rewards are worth the risk that they'll be found out at a certain point. If we're stealing from other countries and then the cultural artifacts of those countries, the historical artifacts of those countries are being sold to the highest bidder to enrich ourselves. If we know that that's happening in our midst here in the US and we shrug because we're only thinking about, well, you know, what can they do? We're creating bad will. We're creating a bad reputation for our country, for our people. If you're part of an institution, if you're part of an organization and you make a habit of looking the other way and thinking, ah, this is only important internally, you get tunnel vision or you're only thinking about what will come back on you. And so you keep quiet. Hey, I complained about it once, but then I got shut down, told we don't bring that up anymore. Long term, when the truth comes out and Part of what is known is that you knew, you suspected, you spoke up, but then you kept it to yourself after that. That's not a good place to be. You become an accomplice at that point. But then also too, in a passive way, if we never look into things that do pertain to us, we never ask the hard questions, the uncomfortable questions, or as soon as we're met with hostility and asking an uncomfortable question, wanting to take a look at what's going on under the hood, behind the scenes, if immediately we're treated as a threat, well, that should send up some red flags like, Whoa, okay, wait a second. I was just a little routinely curious before. Now I really need to look because what are you hiding? Because what's, what's going on there? Now, a natural consequence of my saying that might be for you to ask, well, what were you just saying about minding our own business, working with our hands, aspiring to live a quiet life? being dependent on no one? How does that work with digging into what other people say is their business and none of ours? And that's where you have to know. You have to know when it is your business and when it isn't. So to my way of thinking as a father, as a husband, if my kids are going to Ames Community College and some funny business is being alluded to with regards to a teacher or fellow student, I don't see that as the school's business. Not when my kids are involved, not when my wife is involved, not when I'm involved. If one of my kids needs a medical procedure, my wife needs a medical procedure done. And I just get a, a weird vibe from the doctor or from the nurse. I just I don't have a good feeling about them. There's something off. That's not the hospital's business. That's not that doctor's business. That's not that nurse's business. Not when my wife and my kids are involved. That's my business as a husband, as a father. And why I say this, why I go there with it is perhaps the most disturbing thing that increasingly I see headlines regarding in our day is not this specific individual was doing bad stuff for a long time and then we just found out now it's curtains for them, you know. No, the concerning thing is the attitude shift away from there being a expectation of accountability towards a very bipolar, extreme opposite approach to bringing justice to a situation. 
And this is why I was so opposed to social justice and the woke business and cancel culture is there's no middle ground. There's no sliding scale and there's no fixed standard of when it turns out to be this, then the response ought to be in proportion. And here's how we know, because God said there were two kinds of justice according to social justice. One was if somebody is part of a marginalized group, they can get away with anything because they've got to make up for what they missed out on. You know, they're getting theirs. If somebody was from a perceived oppressor group, well, then anything they might do or say, anything they might not do or not say could be construed as just cause to destroy them, to go after them. But one of the byproducts of that moment we've just been living through and are still to some extent in the midst of, although I think it's waning, one of the byproducts is that I think we've missed the reason why you double check authority figures and you don't give them absolute authority, absolute power without accountability. You don't do that. There's this tendency to either A, destroy those who are perceived to be a threat or to give a blank check. And so, for instance, parents, concerned parents, might not be content with, hey, we're going to talk with this person that we're questioning or doubting is behaving above board or doing what they ought to. Is it going there first? Is there a basis for having that conversation, doing the fact-finding? Or on the one hand, do you have parents being regarded as the threat and then their authority, their standing has to be destroyed? Or the flip side is, is that conversation not happening because we expect the impasse and we skate to where we see the puck is going and we just jump right to the harshest application of consequences for this person who is suspected of being in the wrong? Now, neither of these, neither, neither of these are biblical, God-honoring ways of administering justice or determining guilt and innocence. Both have to go. You know, one of the interesting things I found out as I was listening to more of the podcasts in the series I mentioned uh, yesterday from Reformed Forum regarding Mach and regarding the Presbyterian con- uh, controversy, fundamentalism and modernism in the Presbyterian church in the U.S., I had heard Machen also, his, his name might be Machen. I keep calling him Machen. I don't know which is correct. Daryl G. Hart with Reformed Forum kept saying Machen. I think he slipped up and said Machen one time. I say Machen all the time. Maybe I should say Machen. If you know which is correct, let me know. But apparently Machen did not see himself as a fundamentalist. He didn't see himself that way, and he actually was very cautionary about people he did regard as fundamentalists. He didn't regard himself as one, but he was very cautionary towards fundamentalists because he saw them as fundamentally flawed in their perspective on God's word and on the Christian religion and the Christian worldview, the Christian faith. He didn't see Christianity as a list of fundamentals to uphold and defend and articulate and prove he saw Christianity as a system, which is interesting. That's an interesting fact, which 
I'll have to chew on some more. But really, that's inescapable. I mean, in some regard, there might be certain uh, fundamentals of the Christian faith, which are under attack, especially as a way of trying to abolish and dismiss the whole system. I would agree with that. And so you might have to defend the points that are actually being attacked specifically. That's why we might be talking more about young earth creationism versus evolutionary explanations in our day than they were 500 years ago, for instance. That's why, I, that's why we're talking about gender and sexuality, male and female, more than they were maybe 500 years ago, because those are the points of attack. But it is a system. That's true. And that's also why you really can't have certain areas of study, parts of life that you just cordon off and say, my Christian faith doesn't relate to that. I don't go there. I don't quote Bible verses in these kinds of conversations. I don't think about God's word when we get to this topic or that topic intentionally. I just don't go there. It never goes well. Well, we can't do that as Christians. We can't because it it is all or nothing. And this was H.L. Mencken's uh, obituary for J. Gresham Machen when J. Gresham Machen passed away. H.L. Mencken, a very uh, outspoken atheist, said, I couldn't have disagreed more with his conclusions, but I have so much more respect for Machen than I do the people he was fighting against in the American church because he didn't see Christianity as being a newspaper that you just read the parts you like in and throw away the rest. He saw it as being an all or nothing thing. And I say nothing, but he said all, and I respect that he saw it as an all or nothing because I agree it is an all or nothing enterprise. It is all or nothing. It's either all true or none of it's true. And if none of it's true, well then, what are you doing pretending? What are you doing with the picking and choosing thing? You're worse than an unbeliever, perhaps. You're a hypocrite. You're play acting. But moving on, our next story here. And we don't have very many left. We've just got a couple. One, a Chick-fil-A owner was fined and had to give back pay for giving workers food vouchers instead of pay, according to some reporting over at the Daily Wire from Charlotte Pence Bond. This Chick-fil-A owner, not owner of the entire company, but he owned a particular um, location in North Carolina, maybe more than one, in Hendersonville, North Carolina in particular. He had underage uh, employees who were doing things that are not permitted for underage employees to be doing according to the law. They are not allowed to do this, that, and the other thing. And yet he was having them do those things. Also, too, he was paying in food vouchers, which is verboten. So he had to shell out $235 in back pay to seven workers because they broke the rule, which is not a ton. Uh, the fines, actually, the fines were much more, much steeper, $6,450. Uh, supposedly, workers must be at least 18 years old to work in non-agricultural work that is, quote, particularly hazardous for 16 and 17-year-old minors or detrimental to their health or well-being, end quote. Now, I would say that this is arbitrary, it's subjective. Uh, there's nothing in particular about agriculture that makes it, you know, like 
hey, now the rules don't apply, but jump over here and they apply, jump over there, they don't apply, jump back into here, and they do apply agricultural versus non-agricultural. I think this is silly. I think it's silly. I think we need to rethink uh, child labor laws in this country. Quite honestly, I think it would be good for the character of young people to work, to develop a work ethic, to be able to make money. Uh, there should be some laws. Yeah, absolutely. About what we expose them to. Uh, but again, we come back to this word, no. And that's one thing we need to teach kids how to say and when. They, the kids who don't know how to say no, when they're asked to do something that is life-threatening potentially, and they're not trained and equipped and they're being asked to do it because they won't say no, because they're too immature. Um, that That's bad, right? That's bad. That's exploitative. But there's no magic thing that changes from 17 to 18 with regards to people learning how to say no. You could be 37 and 38 and still not know how to say no when you need to say no. So the law can't account for all these eventualities. This is subjective. It is a prudential debate. But nevertheless, this Chick-fil-A owner, I bet you he is regretting his decision. And that is, after all, the whole idea behind fines, isn't it? <laughs> Last but not least, a once-in-a-generation type event, bomb cyclone, is targeting here the United States. Uh, we've got very cold temperatures in Greeley, Colorado, at least compared with what is normal. Uh, it's typically not super cold here, not compared to eastern Montana, where I'm originally from, or North Dakota, where I worked for so long. But the temperatures right now, th these feel like what is typical. <laughs> the, the temperatures here in Greeley are pretty typical for uh, eastern Montana. Right now, at this moment, it is negative 10, but the real feel is negative 4, and it's looking like we're going to have these negative temperatures below zero temperatures for the next couple of days, really. Uh, some people aren't used to it. They don't like it. They're not sure what they should do about it. Let me give you a couple of practical tips and uh, suggestions. For starters, speaking of starters, your vehicle may not be uh, capable of dealing with this kind of cold. If you're not sure, there is a possibility that it just can't handle it. And I know my brother comes to mind when he first came out to North Dakota to get a job. He was driving around Western North Dakota in his BMW. He had a, a you know, several years old red BMW car and he had the engine block absolutely free solid while he was round about Watford City area. And it absolutely left him high and dry. My wife had to go and pick him up and drive a, a pretty good ways to do so uh, to get him out of there. He had to make other arrangements and get a different vehicle, actually, even. Uh, it is possible that your vehicle is not winterized and it will not cope with this amount of cold for this long. And so I would say, if you're not sure, then don't drive if you don't have to. Don't go driving out long distances, especially if you don't have to, particularly if you don't have a quick way to get somebody to come pick you up and take you home if your vehicle breaks down or leaves you stranded. Do be thinking about 
that as we're dealing with this really, really cold weather. Second, with regards to your home. So the biggest danger with cold like this is frozen pipes. If you have a sink on an outside wall, let's say a kitchen, for instance, you have plumbing down below in the cabinet, and that is against the outside wall of the house, even if it's kind of sort of insulated, you might be surprised at how even just coming through that outside wall, how cold your supply lines to the sink can get. And you can find yourself with frozen pipes and no ability to run water in your kitchen sink if you're not careful. So part of how you guard against this is leaving your cabinet doors open so that you have heat circulating in through the rest of the house. Uh, Also too, be careful about this, but if you want to put a space heater in the doorway to your cabinets, your kitchen sink cabinets, just make sure it's not so close that it's going to catch something on fire. It's not going to brush up against something that's flammable or is melty. And, you know, back it off a little bit, but just point it at what's inside there to keep it warm. And then besides that, if you don't have a space heater or you're not comfortable with that, just running a trickle uh, through your kitchen sink or even a bathroom sink, if you have a bathroom sink on the outside wall of the house, but inside running just a trickle from both your hot and your cold supply lines will help to reduce the chance that you're going to have a freeze there. You don't want to freeze. You don't want something to crack and burst. And also too, you you don't want to lose the ability to have running water when you want to wash your hands or wash dishes or what have you. Third and final suggestion for cold weather like this, if you go outside, do not be out for long. Every square inch of your body that you can have covered in multiple, multiple layers, you should. If you have to go out, if you don't have to go out, don't go out. Just stay inside. That's fine. It's okay. But if you go out, it needs to be brief. Don't try to be a tough guy. Don't try to be a tough girl. It needs to be quick. Get done what you need to get done. Get what you need to get and get back inside and warm up. And if you stop being able to feel your fingers, your toes, your nose, your ears, get back inside. Warm up. It'll take longer to do the thing, but that's better than frostbite. Uh, That's better than hypothermia. That's better than dying. Uh, long and short of it, because this is deadly cold and it's very serious. So those are my advice points. Those are my tips for dealing with this kind of cold to protect yourself with regards to your vehicle, your home, and your body. Dress warm, stay where it's warm as much as you possibly can. It'll pass, it'll blow over, and it'll be fine. So that's all I've got. That's all I've got for this episode. Speaking of the cold and being home for winter and, uh, And all that, I've got some work I've got to do this afternoon and some things I'm going to be researching and looking into. And uh, again, you know, Christmas is almost here. So we've got things going on around the house. We've got a computer to build, which is really exciting. All the parts are here. If everyone can get their chores done, if I can get my work done, then me and the kids will be working on that later this afternoon, putting the parts in the computer so that we have another work and school and play computer. But if I'm going to get my stuff done, if they're going to get their stuff done, I should get going and get to it. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. 
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.